man. Thank you, Alex. That was awesome. Revelation chapter 14, if you'd like to turn there, continue in our worship time and seeking the Lord's Word. Seek and enrich His church and bless His church through His Word. Let's seek that right now. I'm going to turn, if you would, uh, because it's been a little while since we've been here, turn to the beginning of chapter 14. We'll just kind of read through those few verses that we were able to dig into last time and just kind of refresh ourselves where we are in uh, this study. Thanks to my son, Will, for helping me back there on PowerPoint. I'm grateful for that. We're on a tour through the book of Revelation. This is part 20. I know it probably seems longer than that, but really it's only 20 times we've done this. Things which are future. Let's, uh, let's look. Just a reminder, kind of to set the stage. 144,000 are in heaven. Their work on earth is now accomplished. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3, Revelation 14, if you would. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of thunder. Who is this? We know who this is, because we've heard this description before, right? This is who? This is Jesus speaking. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing there on their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So they're in heaven. We see what the identifying mark of God actually was that he gave them that we saw earlier. And they get to sing a new song. Nobody gets to sing the song except for them. Exodus 15, Israel sang a new song to the Lord when he delivered them from Pharaoh. Uh, and now they get to sing another one. And this is a very special time for Israel. Remember, the book of Revelation focus us, is, focuses us on Israel. We have been looking at the church as you work your way through the New Testament. When you get to the book of Revelation, remember it is the revealing of Jesus Christ, things we wouldn't know about Christ apart from this book. And it is the refocusing back on the fulfillment of all the promises that God has promised to his people. Now, verse 4, Revelation 14. Everybody with me? These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. In spite of the perverse system of the Antichrist, all of the temptations, they will be faithful to sexual purity. Uh, that is not isolated, of course, to them alone. God wants us to keep uh, ourselves that way, and he has the ability to help us as we commit our ways to him. He wants us that way now. These are the ones, continue on in uh, this verse, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They will be loyal to Jesus no matter what the cost might be. That was their uh, faithfulness to him. And look, let's look, continue on. These are the, have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Stop right there. That first fruits idea, of course, is the wonderful idea uh, that these 144,000 are the first fruits of a greater harvest of Israel that will come uh, when all Israel that is really Israel will be saved, just like the Lord has promised us all along. Uh, that his nation will be regenerated. Those who are really Israel will be. And uh, we looked at that last time. Kind of confirmed that in the book of Revelation as Paul speaks about that as well. Verse 6, if you would, chapter 14. 
And then I saw another angel. And in this section here, we're going to have a series of five angels in a row. And there's a lot of busy things happening now. Things are really picking up, and we're going to look kind of ahead here in just a few minutes to what's about to come. This is the first of five, but they're all separate angels. They all have some jobs to do. Look at this one. He says, And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Verse 7. And has he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Stop right there, if you would. That's a, that's a marvelous statement if you think about the time period at this point in the tribulation, the 144,000 are in heaven. There's great persecution going on. Uh, the false prophet is doing signs and wonders. People are being coerced into taking the mark of the beast. And then an angel starts preaching to the world from a point where the noonday sun would be in mid-heaven. And uh, he is calling people to repentance. He says, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And all along, we teach people that, don't we? Um, we use that in our witnessing opportunities. I think probably a dozen times Saturday, uh, those words came out of my mouth in one way or another. That there is a judgment coming, and it's already fixed in the future. And you have violated God's law. The Bible says that we have, that uh, we do that every day. We show that we're sinful and have a sinful nature, and we should violate God's law regularly. And God has already set a date to judge all those who violate his law. And that's important. But here, the angel is saying it, and here the judgment is coming right then. But we want to say that. That's part of the gospel. Did you know that? Flee from the judgment to come. Fear God. Give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Right now, when we witness, it is coming. It's already fixed. And two, two different folks in, that, uh, in the response to that, that was the, all of a sudden you realized their, their eyes were wide and they weren't thinking about anything else at that point. Uh, the Lord had put that together. His Holy Spirit does that work, and he put all of that together. I don't know the story of their life. I've never seen them before in my life. And yet the Lord put that together in their own heart. He does that with his Holy Spirit and quickens that heart and says, yes, that's true. Witnesses through his word that you have violated God's law and you are undeserving of judgment. And so you are, uh, the angel then just does what the gospel has always done and just said, fear God, give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. Now it's here. But we're always supposed to say that that judgment awaits. But Christ has taken your place if you will repent and turn. And that's a sweet thing to hear when you hear the judgment is coming. But the angel says the same thing, and now the judgment is there. Okay? Tribulation time is a time of God's judgment on the earth. It's one of the reasons why we are not part of that. Uh, we were not destined for wrath, were we? And this is wrath. And so God is uh, singing to his angel. Uh, it's never his will that any perish. So even in the middle of the tribulation, he sends his angel to say these things uh, to people who are on the earth. He calls men to himself and continues to do it. Now let's look at uh, verse 8. This is the second in a series of five angels. Another angel, a second one, just to be clear, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, of course, uh, people who are secure in their livelihoods or whatever they're wrapped up in uh, may think that, well, you know, all things will continue just like they are. I think that's pretty much where people are today as well. I mean, the economy's not that great, but I mean, we're fairly, they think that they'll probably be all right, and they're not too worried. And so the next angel comes along and he jerks the rug out from under him, doesn't he? 
He says, look, the time of judgment has come. That's what the first angel says. Fear God and give him glory. second angel says, and by the way, this whole system of men, this economic system, the, the system of religion and politics and everything based on the Antichrist, this is all fallen. All right? So don't think that that's going to save you. That's not going to save you. This, this thing that's going on in the world now, it's fallen. So he says that. And uh, Babylon, of course, is the place where idolatry began. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 can confirm that for you. And you can read that up uh, another time. Uh, Revelation 16, and six, verse, chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, talk about the details of the fall of Babylon. So we'll not go into them right now because we'll get to them. But just in general, uh, Babylon made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her immorality uh, here during this tribulation time intoxicated with the pleasures of rebellion against God, hatred and idolatry towards God. And so it has fallen. Now, verse 9, if you would. This is the third angel of five. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That's a terrifying thing to think about, isn't it? Wow, no, no uh, mixing of, uh, and, and, and watering it down and making it sound a little bit uh, uh, lighter on people, right? Um, if you do this, you will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. All through the Old Testament, what we see is God judges nations. He makes them drink the, all the way down to the dregs, the wine of his wrath, as he pours it out on nations to disobey him. And here, in the tribulation time, he says, you're going to drink that. This is what the angel is saying. And he will be tormented, let's continue on right there in that verse, he will be, verse 10, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. And it's made clear that there's no playing games with the number of the beast. The angel is clear. I want to make sure you understand, he says, those who dwell on the earth, you take the number, you worship the beast, you have God's wrath poured out on you, you drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And so a very clear uh, warning, a very clear injunction to stay far away from it. And also, I like also just a small snapshot of what the lake of fire will be like. Um, just to kind of give it, and there are a number of places in the Word where you can get a picture of what a literal hell uh, is, and uh, the second death in particular, as we're going to read about uh, shortly. But the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Listen, people are not annihilated. The Scripture never teaches that a sinful person who dies is, is uh, completely destroyed. It teaches that the punishment will go on forever and ever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. And so a continuous torment forever in the presence. Somehow, some of the angels will be charged with this observation uh, in the presence of the angels and, uh, and in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. So it's terrible trouble that will cause uh, the saved on the earth at that time. Once again, uh, prompts this statement, verse 12, look, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, terrible trouble on the earth. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So there are saved people on the earth. There are people coming to faith. That was the point of the 144,000. That was the point of the two witnesses. That's the point of the angel saying, fear God, worship him. That's the point of it. People come to faith. They do come to faith. 
And the Lord encourages them here, verse 12, and I really think that these verses will be so important to those who are on the earth at that time. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And, of course, all those who truly are saved will do that, right? And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Great verse to illustrate those who are regenerate are kept by the Lord. They persevere. All true believers will never lose their faith, even in the midst of all this temptation and difficulty, much more than now, uh, that will be part of their reality there during the tribulation time, obedient to the truth. No matter what the consequences may be, they obey God's command. They remain faithful to Jesus. And those who die in the Lord, and it was amazing that I kind of highlighted that this evening as I was kind of looking through there. And then we mentioned that several times in our testimony time, my wife did as well, as that is a very common expression throughout the, 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 the scriptures that blessed are those who die in the Lord. And here in particular, they move out of this terrible time of, of, uh, of persecution and into the presence of Christ. And just a marvelous thing to think about, and it seems much more uh, sweet, I think, to them, won't it? And uh, the church survives persecution pretty well. It's, it's uh, prosperity it has a hard time with, right? Persecution just makes us want to get off the ship all the more, right? We want to be with the Lord. And, of course, this is uh, that uh, same encouragement. Blessed are those who die in the Lord and uh, into the presence of the Lord. Don't worry about death. That's encouragement to the believers. And then this particular thing, uh, which is taught throughout the Scriptures too, for their deeds follow with them. Isn't that a great thought? That every righteous thing that you do, the things that you do for the Lord's glory, every prayer, every word of encouragement, every gift that's sacrificial, all the things that are done, whether in secret and under the radar, or where people notice them, but they're done for the Lord and for His glory, follow. And that's a real common theme throughout the Scriptures. We miss it many times because it's just kind of tacked on the end, just like it is here. And uh, I was reading Isaiah a couple of days ago, the Lord is coming with his recompense with him. And that can be taken in a negative, uh, very negative sense, uh, recompensing evil for uh, uh, judgment for wickedness, but also uh, recognizing those who have been faithful. The Lord doesn't forget any of that stuff. I'm quick to forget stuff like that. I know that you are too. We forget to be thankful. We forget to to recognize people who do it. We forget acts of kindness that are, you know, just a couple of weeks old that people do for us. We are just very much like that. But the Lord is not like that. And he remembers those things and those things that we do for the Lord. And I just think that will be part of the essence of heaven. Of course, heaven is wherever the Lord is. And we know the new heaven and new earth uh, will be here and we'll be able to see this all remade in the, in, the, in the way that the Lord had intended for it to be at the beginning. But I think that probably uh, part of those services that we'll attend and things that we'll do to worship uh, will include many of the things we never heard. You know, all the faithfulness that went on and all the, the prayers that were said in desperation and the ones that, uh, that were given in thanks to the Lord and all that. That's part of the worship uh, that goes on before the Lord at all times. And I think that's... Awesome. That's just a just that little uh, part of a sentence is just incredible to me as I think about that. And now, of course, the horrific tragedy is brought about uh, in focus here, verses 14 through 20. And here we get our first glimpse of Armageddon. And just a glimpse of it. We're going to kind of fill in some more gaps as we go along. But keep in mind, as we get ready to read these passages, that um, as other chapters have looked back, and we've talked about that, have they've kind of filled in details for us. 
And we kind of get, we hit the pause button as, as the, uh, the revelation is unfolded for us in chronological order for the most part. And then we hit the pause button and then the Lord takes some chapters and he fills in some gaps. Okay, this is where this started. This is what's going on during this time. Chapter 10 and 11, they go back to the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, chapter 12 goes back to just after creation, actually, and gives us the background on Satan's fall. Uh, chapter 13 gives us some background on the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet and some of the things that they're doing. And chapter 14, this is pretty neat, chapter 14 starts with 144,000 in heaven and then goes forward into some of the stuff that are, is going to happen. And so remember, just realize that as John is getting this vision, he's looking forward now to some of the things that will happen in the next three and a half years. And of course, this chapter has to do with the victory of Christ. And so that's going to be a common theme. And it continues in that theme, the fall of Babylon and Armageddon. All right, now let's look at verse 14, if you would. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. All right? Now, Revelation 1, uh, verse 13, uh, talks about one like the Son of Man. We know it is the title that Jesus used of himself. Most often, actually 81 times, uh, Jesus uses the title the Son of Man of himself. It's an implied claim to deity. He's referring to himself as the Messiah. So in your notes, Jesus, this is Jesus we're speaking about. Okay? Now, it, you can go on to the next one there, William, if you would. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 12. This is the main text of Jesus in the clouds. A lot of uh, passages speak about this so that you can be sure as you look around uh, the word, you'll know that we're speaking about Jesus here. But this is the main text of Jesus in the clouds. Verse 13 of, uh, of Daniel chapter 7, actually. I kept looking in the night visions and behold... So Daniel's getting a vision from the Lord. He needs much help in understanding it. An angel's sent to help him. And uh, Daniel says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So same, almost same snapshot of the time, Daniel giving an understanding of it for us, uh, that the Lord Jesus is about to, to take back the earth. What rightfully belongs to him will forever after that belong to him as its rightful ruler. Now, Matthew 24:30 is a very similar passage, and it talks about Christ coming in the clouds. And uh, as it speaks of this, talking about the second advent, the second actual coming of Christ as he's going to come down and touch the earth. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how everyone on the earth will know this is who this is, right? Because you always have a lot of discussion about different uh, uh, space phenomenon as uh, people observe different things. This is this, and you know, Pluto isn't really a Pluto, and all this. And people are confused about all that and, and argue about it, and all these guys know a great deal about this. But here, everybody's going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and everyone will know it. And the sign of the Son of Man will be coming. And so the sign of the Son of Man will be clear, and everybody's going to know what it is. I'm very excited to find out what, at what point that will be uh, shown and what it will look like. That It will be no question in everyone's mind. Matthew 26:64 again, speaks in these terms. Jesus said to him, You have said to yourself, Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. As he 
uh, defends, of course, his own deity and his own right to rule. He says, you will see this. This is going to be something that is the future for you. Acts 1, 9 through 11. Uh, this is pretty neat. One of the kids came up uh, and asked at the Bible answer table, which I had a lot of fun sitting with Dr. Ferguson and Dr. Olson, uh, and just talk, and, I, and one of the great things, just put this on pause for a second, one of the great things I liked about the passport system, which I thought was marvelous, and just an absolute, uh, I don't know whose brainchild that was, but that was perfect, because we talked to every kid who came there, because they all wanted a big old ring pop, and uh, so they were going to go through there, and so we got to t t talk to every kid, I got to talk to most of the parents, uh, for a, and that's where I got most of my witnessing opportunities, about a dozen times, I guess, throughout the day, where I got to give the gospel out. But it was really cool. But one of the kids said, or right, here's my Bible question, what was the last thing Jesus said before he went to heaven? And I said, well, let's turn to or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we'll find out. Because he says something and he goes up. And so he goes, oh, that's cool. So this is verse 9. It's right after he said what he said. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? We would have been doing that too, right? I mean, we're falling right in there. We watched Jesus go up. Holy cow, that's awesome. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That's pretty neat, isn't it? all speaking of the same exact moment that we're talking about now. In just a few chapters, we're going to read about that event that the angel talked about. Very exciting. All right, now, this person in the clouds is none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has a sickle, and uh, that's an instrument of reaping. That's an instrument of judgment. Okay? Now, verse 15. Let's look there, if you would. Here's the fourth angel in a series of five. All right, verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. This is Christ coming, okay? So he says to Christ, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, who told the angel to say this? He didn't sit there in the temple and go, I need to go tell Jesus to go reap the earth, right? Because angels only do what they're told, right? They are messengers from the Lord. So the Lord has sent this angel. He speaks to Christ himself and says, Put your sickle into the earth. It's time to reap the earth. And the angel comes out with God's instructions. Verse 16. And then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now you can see in broad strokes we're seeing the end of everything, aren't we? Christ is coming. All the wicked are reaped in wrath. Right? Because this is a, it's an instrument of wrath. And so obviously we're looking forward because we haven't worked our way up to that point yet, have we? So we're looking forward. We can see this is, uh, this is what's to come, John. This is the victory of Christ. You can write about this, and then we'll fill in some gaps as we go through the, the back part of this uh, book. So in broad strokes, the in this chapter, we see the victory of Jesus and the end of all the rebellion. We see the end of all the blasphemy, of all the sinfulness, all the disrespect, all the dishonor, all the unthankfulness, and all of God's people are so excited about that, right? That's awesome to think that that is going to finally come to an end. And the imagery here is grain and the whole world ripe for harvesting judgment because the book of Revelation is about judgment, isn't it? And uh, revealing Jesus as a righteous judge and we're allowed to see the complete victory in one statement. He reaps the earth. And then John sees some specific details of what is to come 
and the end of the campaign against uh, Jerusalem and God's people and the Antichrist is empowered by Satan has been waging war on the Jews and all of her offspring which are the tribulation saints so he's been waging all this war and this is going on during this time and that campaign finds its final battle in a certain location alright now look and this is the fifth of five angels in our passages we're looking at tonight we're about done and another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle, just like Jesus has. And now the imagery shifts to the harvesting of grapes to be pressed. All right, so the harvesting of the world in general, the end of all wickedness, all of that stuff, all the fruit of wickedness is all harvested out. And now this imagery kind of changes a little bit. You can see this. Just look at the word cues, all right? It can tell you that you're kind of shifting and you're going to see the wrath. We're going to get more specific now, actually what's being poured out. And God uses this trampling of grapes uh, and drinking of this wrath very often in the scriptures. Verse 18, then another angel, the one who has power of a fire, came out of the altar. So here's a sixth one now, another one who has come out, uh, a fire out of the altar. Now look, if you would, Revelation 6, 9, remember what's been going on underneath the altar. You can turn there if you'd like. Just flip back, hold your finger there. It's rich, uh, this cross-reference. Uh, what's been going on underneath the altar. The angel here comes, uh, has power over fire, comes out from the altar Revelation 6, 9, remember, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, remember we're lowering through the seals, verse 9 of chapter 6, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And verse 10, it says, And they cried out with loud voices, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Guess what time it's about now? Right? We've about completed that very thing the Lord said was still going to happen in that short time of the tribulation. And so here comes this angel. He comes out from under the altar with the power over fire. He comes there. Now, Revelation 8.3. Turn there if you would. Just go forward a couple of chapters. Uh, this angel we see here in chapter 14. Uh, verse 18 is a familiar one. We've seen him before. All right, verse 3, chapter 8. Another came, came out and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth and followed peals of thunder, sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And so this angel uh, who is there in charge of the fire of the altar, he puts it on the incense as well. Uh, we see him come out from under the altar where we know that these tribulation saints have been dwelling there, all those who were martyred for their faith, and they're crying out to the Lord. And now you see the Lord setting everything right, and he's coming back around to what he said was going to happen, and he's going to bring out this judgment. And this is the same angel we see here. So what's he say? Verse 18, And he called out with a loud voice to him who had a sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And he commands the angel that just came out with a sickle in his hand to reap. Verse 19, So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into a great winepress of the wrath of God. And there's a lot of wonderful imagery going on here, but it's just like what's found in other parts of the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, you turn there, William. Isaiah 63, 2. Why is your apparel red 
and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. And the Lord says, I've trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled, sprinkled on my garments, and I stained my raiment. Do you think the Lord is done with sin? And that it's serious? And that the rebellion against him is serious? And choosing to worship someone other than the true God? Do you think that matters to the Lord? I think that just with a few statements, we realize that it does, don't you? As the Lord describes himself as trampling alone uh, the earth and those who were in it, and their own lifeblood is what has sprinkled and stained his garment. Lamentations 1.15, The Lord has rejected all my strong men in my midst. He has called an appointed time against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. And so, kind of in a precursor of what would come for, for the whole earth, we know that Judah itself was trodden and judged by the Lord. And so if he didn't spare his own people, he certainly will not spare the world who has rejected him. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. So you can kind of correlate this, this uh, reaping and this treading of the wine press with judgment and wickedness and an end to all of that. And the Lord is done with it. He's, he has endured, and he has set aside his anger for a time and dammed it up beside this great dam of grace that Christ Jesus uh, gave us. But that's all done, and he's judging. Jesus is doing the judging at God's command of the whole world. And the angels are carrying out the specific tasks, as we have seen, Right from the beginning of the book, right in a specific location, the, the, the Lord is saying he's going to judge the earth, and then he gives angels specific tasks to do, and they do it. And now the imagery is grapes, ripe for the press of God's wrath, and it gets very, very graphic. All right? Now here in Revelation 14, it's referring to the unprecedented slaughter of the remaining enemies of God. And I've got a couple pictures of wine presses. This is not a familiar picture for us in, uh, in our own age, but you can see there where it would be trodden, and then you have vats that can catch on both sides. Uh, well, down here on this side, uh, you have vats that can catch the wine as it's been crushed. Go on to the next one, Will. But uh, that's the severity. It convey the severity of judgment. You can see there again where it would be caught. Uh, it really consists usually of two vats or receptacles of trough, uh, the Greek word lenos, into which the grapes were thrown and where they were trodden upon and bruised. And two, then there's a vat, a polyon, uh, where they would be... Uh, uh, the juice would run from the trough above. And the graphic idea here, just that the grapes are splattered as you would step on them and they would splash. Uh, the juice runs down through the vat to the lower vat. People will have this happen to them. This is judgment on the world. And uh, people who have rejected the Lord and his offer of redemption. Go on to the next one, brother. All right, if you would. So just a few just uh, demonstrations of ancient ones. I think I have one up here just of a, a drawing. Go ahead, William, if you would just of a drawing where they can support some of their weight there. You can see as they crush, uh, as the juice would be crushed, it would be running out into these vats, which would be where it would be caught. But here you just have an awful imagery of the Lord is done with wickedness. He's, he's ready for judgment. And here, uh, just in broad strokes, we see what's going to happen to the world. We're going to see it specifically in the next couple of chapters of what will happen. Verse 20, in the wine press, if you look there, was trodden outside the city. And the blood came, hold right there if you would for a minute, William. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle. So now you see direct correlation. No, it's not just talking about grapes, is it? It's talking about people. 
And the horses bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And God's determined this is going to happen outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, just so that you can kind of get an idea of where we are, you can see the Jezreel Valley, right? And you can see Megiddo, and you can see a dot there. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to see some real photographs of those things. But this is the, the location of this. And uh, Revelation 16.16 16, uh, exactly identifies this location as Armageddon. It's only found here in Revelation. All right? You can go on, Will, if you'd like. And uh, it's really referring to the Valley of Jezreel or the Plain of uh, Estralion. Um, there's Mount Megiddo, just a uh, snapshot of it. It's not a great one. There's a couple of different ones. Go to the next one, Will, if you would. But uh, approximately Mount Megiddo is where the name Armageddon is derived. It's a Hebrew Har-Megiddon. So uh, there it is again. You can see the plane out in front of it. We're going to see a full length of the plane here in just a minute. Uh, go ahead to the next one, William, if you would. There you can see it from Mount Megiddo, the plane that's laid out. That is the plane where the Lord has uh, where there, this, this battle, this final judgment on the world will happen. Now, this, is a, this place is not uh, foreign to battle, okay? Uh, there's been much, much blood shed here over the many, many years. Uh, the victory uh, over Sisera by Deborah and Barak occurred right here. Uh, Gideon's defeat of Midian occurred here. Saul's death at the hands of the Philistines occurred here. Josiah's death in the battle with Pharaoh Necho occurred here. And on and on and on and on. Blood and bones and graves all over the place. But this will be the main, this will be the location where God's wrath will be poured out full strength. And the low mountains around Megiddo were the silent witnesses of more bloody battles than any other spot on the face of the earth. Zechariah 13. Would you turn there and we'll close up with this. Zechariah 13. <coughs> Zechariah 13, verse 8. It's going to speak a little bit about uh, kind of a cross-reference for us here to give us an idea as, as the prophet here speaks about this time period and the Lord speaks about his people and the remnant of his people that will really be saved. And uh, verse 8, Zechariah 13. Verse 8, I will come, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. Verse 9, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. That's, uh, you're at chapter 8, verse uh, what, 1, Zechariah 13, 8, yeah, through 14, 5. So you're at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming from the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, and the houses plundered. And the women ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. When the Lord fights on a day of battle. That's when he's going to fight against the nations. Talk about the same time period. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move towards the north, the other half toward the south. 
You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So a marvelous time still sets in the future. And this is a very quick snapshot illustrating the end battle as we will look at this a little bit more later. But the slaughter will be so great Slaughter there, as it begins in that valley, will be so great that the troughs of blood will approach three to four feet deep. And that will be for the length of about 184 miles. And so approximate distance from Mount Megiddo to uh, the north to Edom to the south, approximately the length of Israel. So very difficult days for the world. And can you imagine the destruction, the judgment? Uh, Do you think that uh, God is serious about salvation and deliverance from wrath? For when he pours out his wrath and judges the earth and takes it back, uh, many, many will perish, which is all the more reason for us to be urgent about our witness, right? Because the Lord has given us full knowledge and understanding, enough to know uh, what, the, what the future holds for those who live on the face of the earth. All right, let's stop right there. We're already way over time, and I'm sorry about that. Let's uh, close out in a word of prayer, and we'll pick up here next Sunday night, Lord willing talk some more about the remaining judgments to come. All right, let's bow. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for your wonderful mercy on us, for allowing us to come to saving knowledge, for reaching out and drawing us to yourself. We thank you also, Father, and think of yesterday and for the blessings of, of the ministry we were able to do. Thank you for the many who went out in the weeks prior and handed out door hangers and spoke with folks who actually came yesterday as a result of those things and were able to hear the gospel clearly. Thank you for many who witnessed yesterday. I pray that you'll continue to work in hearts as they uh, heard the gospel. I pray that you'll draw them to yourself. That it will be about follow-up and taking care of those who come. Lord, show us how best to minister to them. We know that your word is the way that you bless your church and you encourage your church to help us in all of our classes, and all of our times together, to magnify your word, to explain it carefully, and to see people come to a full realization of who they are and what you have intended for them. Lord, thank you for the blessings of fellowship in a church that loves you, desires to serve you. And we wait for your son's return to catch us away. We're glad we weren't destined for wrath, and we're, uh, we're grateful to you beyond uh, even what we can express in a very uh, childlike terms. We're so grateful that we don't have to endure the things that you have planned for those who have turned away from you and rejected uh, your blessed Son and his blood. So, Lord, thank you for that. Help it be a motivation for us to be faithful witnesses. You've ordained the times. You've put the people in our path. Uh, You've uh, put together the plan. You're the one who does the work in the heart. And so, Lord, uh, we really, all we have to do is the easy part. Just give out the good news and let it go to work. Help us to be about that. And Lord, if anything, uh, this year, I pray that our church will move in that direction. This has been a wonderful church through the years with great teaching, faithful men who have faithfully divided the word and given it out, and many who have been soul winners. But Lord, I pray that you'll multiply those uh, soul winning folks among us. We might be about that as we're about the other things you've asked us to do. We give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said.